It's February 18th, 2021. This is Rook. Those of us of Iranian descent have always known that our food is sumptuous, stellar, and sort of superior. But is Persian cuisine the new superstar on the scene? You can barely open Instagram without seeing a floral festooned fesenjun or a savory selected sabzi polo. Food blogger and cultural investigator Azita Hushiar joins us for a feature chat today about cuisine, customs, and growing up in America and then moving back to Iran. Plus, speaking of food, Chef Haas is here, and he's going to explain the secret to the savory in your saffron. And a new edition of It's All Persian to Us as well. This is Conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. there. Welcome to episode number 86 of Rook. Hope you're keeping well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. Salam, Dustona Aziz. Omidvar hastam ke khub va mizun hastin. Hello, the fabulous Kion. Durud, Jianjun. Durud, Kianjun. Azita Hushiar coming up in a few minutes. She's a has this popular food blog and Instagram page called Fig and Quince. Uh, she's a great writer about Persian cuisine. I, I think she's just a great writer in general. Um, and she did a very interesting TEDx talk in Tehran not too, too long ago. I want to ask her about the growing popularity of Persian food, especially in social media. Have you noticed that, I mean, is it just me or like all of a sudden there's Persian food, the pictures of Persian food. A lot more Peppering now. your Instagram, yeah. Yeah, it's it, not just sushi and Indian food anymore. That's right, and Thai food. food. It looks like mm. Persian food may be the new hipster kid on the scene, right? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> even though it's not, it's not very new, but uh, so I, I want to ask her about this. I mean, she's been, she was one of the kind of pioneering food bloggers when it comes to Persian cuisine. You know, she's been doing it for a few years to ask if, in fact, this is a moment for Persian cuisine or if it's going to be a moment, if it's going to be the new trendy thing, uh, or if it is already, as well as her story of she became a lawyer in America and then uh, found her passion being a creative person working on Persian culture and food, and now she's moved back to Iran. Interesting. Yeah, there's some, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting story. Azita, who she are, joining us in uh, just a few moments. I'm looking forward to talking to her. Hello, Groovy Shaya. Hi. hi How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? Good. Hasty. Good. Farsi begam Sure. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, hello, Captain Reza. Welcome back. Hello. You sir. have returned from the cottage of love and yes. sex and hedonism. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How was your Valentine's TMI, TMI. extravaganza? <laughs> it was fantabulous. Oh, to say the least. There's a spring in your step. Oh. It's you, uh, you feel like a young man again, don't you? <laughs> I feel loose as a goose and ready to mingle. No, I'm joking. 
But you, you, as a 33 year old, you feel 31 now. You had such a <laughs> easily, good, yeah. <laughs> easily took a year and a half off, if not two. Uh, well, we missed you on the last oh, edition of, uh, of course, uh, Savvy Roham was here. Uh, yeah, yeah, Savvy, yeah. but he's no substitute for the great uh, Captain yeah. Reza. There's no captain. There was no captain of the ship. Yeah, we didn't have a so, captain Reza. I know, I know. The ship was falling, <laughs> sinking, if you will. Ships don't fall. Ships ships don't fall. This <laughs> elevated Keon, ship was Keon. falling. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, leave me alone, guys. <laughs> hey, we're off to a good start. Uh, we're on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity coming to you on SoundCloud. You may be listening to us there. Instagram, if you haven't joined us on Instagram, we are there. YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, CastBox, and Telegram. Uh, we are accumulating followers each week. Uh, we're over a half a million streams now, followers from around the world. You know what I say to that? Mm. Do share. Hamas <laughs> Karanot. What? Is that Hebrew? What? Hamas <laughs> Karanot. Okay, Shia, he's making up no, words well, now, right? Uh, now, I have shared this with Shia. So let me tell you a story. Yeah. This is, uh, I, I don't know if this is a word or not. <laughs> But I'm, Great. but I'm, I'm out to make it popular again. I'm bringing back Hamas Can you tell us what that means? Can you try saying it? Hamas no? I just no? cleared my throat. <laughs> That's right. Just basically try clearing your throat. Hamas This is something my dad would say. My beautiful dear late father had all these sayings. And it was never clear whether they were real Persian words or not. I mean, he was 40 years older than me. And, and, uh, and so he and my mom moved to England in the, in the 1960s, like long before I was born. So his sayings and cultural practices were from even, you know, as late as a few years ago when he was still alive here in Canada. They were from Iran of the 1950s, you know, and this is what I learned. So I'll still be in situations where I'll be like, do study be manzel man? And friends will sort of go, we don't say manzel, dude. You know, it's khune. And I'll be like, what? You know, I'm using some 1950s Farsi language because I got it from my dad, right? So my dad would say these things that I've sometimes explained to you guys that that I never knew weren't words like a, like for cat he would say bishurkhar right <laughs> What <laughs> That's right bishurkhar not word. Oh. so I would say so I'd be like in a group of friends and I'd be like oh bishurkhar dari and they'd be like what what are you saying <laughs> right So khamas not is something that my dad would say and it sort of means when there, I mean, this is how he would use it, I think. When there's an abundance of something, something big is happening, you go to a, you go to a concert and there's like, it's thousands of people packed in, you go, Hamas not, you know? Or like you're in a, tra- <laughs> you're in a traffic jam and there's too much traffic, you go, Hamas So I, uh, now I, I wanted to bring this to the show and so I, I slowly go around. And the one thing I can say about the Rook team, it's a pretty literate team when it comes to Farsi, even though it's a young team. So I go to Ponta the artist, I mean, she's young, but she's really good with, you know, and I'm like, Hamas Karanat, it's like just blinking her eyes, nothing, zero, right? <laughs> Savvy Roham, nothing, you know? So I come to Shia. Now, Shia is like going to the top of the mountain to yeah. see the, you know, the, the, I mean, if Shia doesn't know it, you know, and Nobody. he perked up one eyebrow, he was like, hmm. Uh, I, mm, 
I'm, I'm not sure this is a word, you know. Uh, he's like that? A, yeah. But he didn't want to dismiss it. He didn't want to dismiss it, so I knew that there was possibilities. So I called my cousin in Calgary who remembered my dad, of course, and my cousin uses this Hamaskaronaut as well. And I say, what's the deal? Is this a real word? And he says, yes, it's rooted in some kind of language from 100 years ago in, in Iran. Oh. But it it means now I still I mean what do I know right I just like the sound of it but but Shia says so then you looked it up on some yeah actually yeah. it's it's kind of Hamas it means one fifth and Karan oh. is like a money Karun oh. so Hamas Karanat it literally means that one fifth of your money. <laughs> which is related to some religious stuff i mean some mm. religious rules but i don't my dad wasn't really religious no but, but uh, yeah i mean i don't know what's the relation between <laughs> hamas karanat and for example uh, huge traffic <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's arabic no uh, no i think it was um i think it was my cousin was explaining that it's something it's something like um uh, if you're giving me money, you should, you, you, you know, uh, that's not enough. Give more, yeah, Where, you, like uh, something like that. So you go, Hamas got a lot, like, uh, you know, uh, oh, we've got all these followers, you know, let's go. Come on, give us not just one fifth, give us all the followers. Oh, yeah. Is that, does that what makes sense? Uh, yes, I yeah. think that makes sense. Yeah. The reason I wanted to bring this up is because I'm uh, learning that this rook is quite a resource because we say things now and our audience has grown big enough that we hear from smart people in the audience yeah. who, of course, tell us we're wrong usually <laughs> but but police our language and explain things to us so i'm thinking there's somebody out there uh-huh. who knows this Hamas or not right you know but i also just want to use it all the time <laughs> that just it's, sounds like a lot of phlegm it's just going to be your family reaching <laughs> out your cousins. <laughs> nobody else knows what you're talking about no <laughs> somebody listen there's someone out i there. think there's somebody out there who is hearing this who's going oh no they're onto something here and you know, will explain it to us. And Please if there, write to us. So we there can is a husband somewhere who's turning to his wife and is like, you see, I told you this is a real word. <laughs> you guys are so unimpressed with Baikhamas <laughs> Karana. I'm shocked. Uh, I was looking see, for Shia, them. though, he liked it. He was, you were into oh, it. Yeah, you were yeah. like really, I'm you know, that's I, why I love Shia. The problem is I don't believe it yet. I want someone else to confirm this besides mm. Shia and Gian. Even if the, the word is not exist, really, mm. I, I'm going to use it from now on. <laughs> okay, yeah. let's hear you use it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I want to use it like when I'm both happy and when I'm sad. It just sounds like an angry word. I'm you know, like, like, my partner, you know, cheats on me. <laughs> you know. Or on the other hand, you know, I get a big gift. <laughs> it's all in the tone. Oh, I'm telling you. It's so all in the crazy. tone. I want to uh, know that we've lost all non-Iranians who ever listened to this show. They're just and like, Iran- most turn- Iranians <laughs> and the Iranians it's hurting our ears. <laughs> I, I have, uh, I've lost the entire audience with one, one word. Speaking of the entire audience, before I lose you, we've launched our patrons page. We do really need your help. All right, this is a. Uh, if you are a listener of Rook and you like what you hear, you support our content or you appreciate a platform dedicated to the connective tissue of, of Iranian diaspora identity, to that I say, <laughs> 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 uh, 
waiting for it. <laughs> Please. I know. It's just going to be all over the... Poor Azita. How am I going to do the interview without... <laughs> just to, killed her interview. Uh, please don't wait for others to keep us alive, all right? It's like, you know, we need your help. We don't want to turn this into a big commercial enterprise. $10 a month or even $5 a month is helpful. It really is. It takes you a minute. Go to our website, rookmedia.com. Click on support us. Um, Kian, we have a new rock star. Oh, do we? Yeah. <laughs> this is, uh, you know, every time someone becomes a patron for $50 a month, they get their hoodie, they get a bunch of things. But but also, um, we give them a shout out on the show. Uh, I'll also mention some of our BFFs later, but we call $50 a month a rock star um, and $100 a hero and a, a $250 a legend. But we have a new rock star. I thought this was, I really wanted to mention her because this is so sweet. Sarah, uh, Sarah Swanson a non-Iranian fan of our program who lives in Michigan and works in the book business and just really has become a real fan of of Rook and you know she's written in some letters to us Uh, so thank you to Sarah Swanson our newest rock star uh, nice. Putting the Iranians to shame, a non-Iranian <laughs> oh, wow. supporting this. The, the Iranian—it's uh, like uh, Jane Lewis and the, you know, saying oh, that yeah, the, yeah, the Golha totally. project is supported by the British, <laughs> the British government. It's like where are the Iranians? Um, but uh, anyway, thank you so much to, to uh, Sarah. And by the way, if you don't don't you don't have to have your name mentioned for the modest folks out there who prefer to become patrons and not get a shout out. That's okay too. There's a little button on there that says uh, you know don't mention my name or I prefer to be anonymous or something like that but um thank you to sarah and rookbedia.com uh you know on our last show we had a rock star from i think it was the last UAE? show yeah from yeah. dubai right and we were surprised we were like do we have listeners there so yeah. i did some digging it turns out it's Hamas or not. It turns out <laughs> there's two. There's two people there. That no, no. It's there's thousands. Wow. It turns out the UAE is the eleventh largest market for rook listers in the world. I mean, eleven sounds low on the list, but if you think about the entire world, yeah. right? It's way ahead of a bunch of European countries. I mean, it's it's one of our spots where there's a bunch of listeners. Yeah, huh. isn't that interesting? Hamas do you know the top five rook countries? Oh, top it keeps five changing, doesn't it? Canada, for sure. Canada, uh, for sure. Iran, for sure. Yes. U.S. Yes. I mean, those are given. Canada, um, U.S., Iran. Germany. Yes. Australia. Yes, yeah? that's it. That's okay. the top five. <laughs> Do I win something? Um, you... Uh, <laughs> No, actually, you have to become a patron. <laughs> That's right. It's used to express disappointment as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm always a bit disappointed that the UK isn't there. I'm like, where's Good the country point. of my birth? There's you know? Persians there. Where are well, they? They're, they're, we interview them. We or always have people on from the UK. That's but right. but we Canada, US, Iran, Germany, Australia are our countries so far in that order. Where is UK? In number that? six. Number six. Ah, it's just okay. See so they're there. On, and then Sweden. There's a whole bunch of. Oh, yes, there's a few there's thousand a listeners, regular mm-hmm. listeners that are, makes are in Sweden as well. So uh, I don't know what we have to do to get the the UK mobilized. I'm telling you, it's my British accent. I got to throw that on every that episode. Might be it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, how you doing, Captain Reza? I'm great. Still happy? Yeah, Still. I'm, hey. He's like a new man. Year the year. Came back after yeah, the orgy smiling. weekend. Of these, yeah. Oh my God! <laughs> I don't know what you were doing up there. He was <laughs> like, oh, he was smiling. He was handing out man. gifts. He has cigars. <laughs> you know. I just keep seeing that huge flower bouquet balloon thing oh, yeah. in the. 
lobby and I just want to cry that I don't have these balloons won't die the balloons (laughs) that uh, Captain Reza's girlfriend got you know what you did Reza you made me start a fight with my boyfriend on Valentine's another one no I'm kidding I'm saying oh Reza did you hear about this no you didn't listen to our show fight you were so consumed in your weekend so as we explained on on our show on Monday Keon preemptively <laughs> started a fight with her her boyfriend on Saturday. Valentine's Day was on Sunday. You on Saturday, what? she started a fight because she Keon. anticipated that the gifts wouldn't be good enough. Oh. The poor guy ends up like, and the weirdest part about this, I've been thinking about this all week. People have been talking to me about it. The weirdest part of it was, <laughs> like I said, he ends up getting her jewelry, getting like <laughs> and like serious jewelry, and getting her chocolates. And like flowers, like everything on the lists, you know, of some tradition. And, and, and he cooks her dinner. Cook, yeah. oh and then I God. say to Keon, oh, all the, well, wow, you know, what did you get him? And she says, nothing. My love. Nothing. <laughs> wow. What kind of a deal does okay. she have with no, this guy? Valentine's Day in general is usually for the women, is it not? It's a celebrating it? love. I, well, to my understanding. <laughs> I mean, Reza's a you rare case. I don't know what you're doing right no, in your for relationship. for us, it was like, it was a mutually like celebrated event. You're equal partners. But you both give each other. The, you mean you've never given someone, a guy, a Valentine's Day Valentine's? card? Valentine's? Like, no. Wow. Like a car. See, she's okay. got it. I, I'm <laughs> offended, but, but oh. just, uh, yeah. I would give you a Valentine's card, Shia. No, thank You're you. You're different. But, no, <laughs> Valentine is for love. Love is a mutual. It's, it doesn't have but any. But I feel like the guys. Really. But see, I feel like the guys don't care, and I thought I didn't care either until mm-hmm. I got into a relationship. And you know what? You know what the difference is. Instagram, Instagram. Mm. So the I would see all these videos of people, you know, for example, Reza away on this romantic weekend, and I would preemptively get what angry. What kind of an antiquated idea about men? You, this the guys <laughs> don't care. You think that we don't care? You think if we're in a relationship, we don't want to hear well, as well that you love us or of you? Of course, but right. how how do you show that? Give the guy a flower? You, Is that? Isn't that a little bit no, feminine? Like, no, I love flowers. <laughs> I mean, Reza I buy them for myself all okay. the time. <laughs> all right, okay. I mean, learned. Reza's, yeah, but you know, anyway, I mean, between the two of you, you guys both have like, ever, what's what are we doing wrong, Shia? <laughs> These guys are just like collecting, you know. And, oh, but 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 Reza does stuff in return. I oh mean, yeah, I got a set of nice flowers for her that okay. she. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She you got right. they're, okay. not, they're not called a set of flowers. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but okay, it was also <laughs> not, his not birthday. Buy, I keep forgetting right. it was his birthday last right, week, and right, that's right. why he got flowers and balloons. Uh, right, not uh, for Valentine's that's Day. That's right. That is so. Very, did you get correct. anything for Valentine's Day? Of course Day? I did. What I did got her. Uh, no, what did what did she fl- get you? Box of flowers. She didn't get me anything. Okay, for there we go. Oh, she didn't get you anything for Valentine's Day. I settled my case. There you go. I don't know. I got her for Valentine's Day, but uh, but she got she got cake i think well no that was for my birthday what am i talking about <laughs> exactly. I mean, i've always in my really it's always been an exchange if well, you're no in a relationship is, not everybody can be jean that you better get me some flowers <laughs> you better get me some flowers man <laughs> all right fine okay well anyway i mean so how's the rest of the week been it's been great I, did know, he hear the conversation we had he, on the he has it's, it's become a funny we story defended now. him we I had mean, our first fight so in a way it's it's okay. poetic oh, oh that was your first so fight yeah that was our first the first fight was you getting mad at him for no for, reason for no reason <laughs> and it will be the rest of the fights you'll have it'll always be you getting it'll mad all be downhill <laughs> it's uh we're gonna get to azita who she are and talk about persian cuisine persian culture the chef hoss coming up in just a little while but first it's thursday 
You know what that means. She's a dear friend, a diaspora, a blend, a gym fanatic, a kook who can be erratic, but lovable, smart, and funny, and on a journey to discover what we actually discovered. Here we go, Batshaha. It's all Persian to us with Kion Nademi. All right, Kian Nadimi, what do you have for us this week? Well, we are now deep into the winter season here in Toronto, as you can just look outside the window as it's snowing <laughs> <Yes>. very vigorously. Freezing temperatures and frigid cold air forcing us to hibernate and cover up as much as possible. Well, I tell you, thank God we can fully cover up our legs with a pair of uh. your legs. Pair of underpants, snowsuit, <laughs> pants, pants, Under- trousers, yes, Tra- pants. Oh, there trousers. we go, trousers, slacks, pantaloons. We invented trousers. Breeches. Can I yeah, get sorry. to the yeah. point where I, I got you know, excited? The big, the big aha moment. <laughs> oh, <right>. of, uh, <laughs> yes, they're also no, uh, known as knickerbockers. If you mm, were, if yeah, you didn't yeah. know that already, but better known as pants. Yes, this innovative creation was first invented by you guessed it. The Persians. And I don't know about anybody else, but I've basically been living in my sweatpants throughout this pandemic. So I'm feeling especially grateful for this invention. Yes, you heard me. The fabulous Keon has turned (laughs) into the pathetic Keon. (laughs) But it's okay, Shia. You know why? Uh, why? Because this too shall pass. Oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> snap. Done. Yes. All right. all right. So remember how Persians invented high heels for horseback riding? How, mm-hmm. Remember how, that? How could we? F- <laughs> that was too <laughs> That's for the For the purposes of horseback riding, <laughs> that was the pretext. <laughs> like Persians were just, to, Persian men wanted to invent high heels and talked about horseback riding. Yeah, well, as it turns out, they invented pants for the exact same reason. Wow, yeah. this horseback riding, it, <laughs> it, it, was a thing. it delivered a lot for it us. Did. Yeah, we invented a lot of <laughs> Revolutionary. things. Revolutionary. So, <laughs> so pants, presumably because you straddle a horse, you yes. can't be, uh, What I mean, what did Persian men wear before the... Well, they skirt? like loincloths. I guess so. <laughs> no, that's like the question, toga. Actually, what were we? Shaya, you know ancient, ancient history. What actually, were they? that's a good question. Yeah. I know, maybe the some. Uh, do you know deshtasha? Yeah, like dress. Like they were dresses. Like yes. long, right. yeah, long dresses. dresses. Yeah. And the first guy who was like, "Aspneminam uh, in you know, I yeah. need to go. I need some <laughs> pants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they had to figure out a way to comfortably ride horses. Right. And also, remember how I talked about Wonder Woman and the Amazons being based on horse riding warrior women from ancient Persia? That was mm-hmm. like, yeah, a f- yeah. I think, yeah. well, a month ago. <laughs> well, these same women were depicted wearing pants. Wow. It all comes full circle. The women invented the pants. Well, oh, that would they, be a good like uh, the whole twist. The, the funny part is that, that pants it, throughout history have been known as a masculine kind of yes. clothing, but in ancient times warrior women the Persians we were so cool back we then. We were cool. The what men happened? invented the high heels, <laughs> the women invented yeah. the pants. Yeah, well, the women, women voted uh, first back then. Well, right? it's actually no. not known if the women invented the pants. Oh. It was just known that women wore, wore the pants. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So pants made their first appearance in recorded history in the 4th century BC when they were worn by both men and women in ancient Persia. Depictions of pant-wearing Persians can be seen on the walls of our very own Persopolis in modern-day Shiraz. And depictions of Persian women specifically wearing pants were found on ancient Greek artifacts where they're depicted on horseback fighting in battle. 
I brought this up back on ap- episode 76, actually, when I talked about Wonder Woman and the Amazons being based on Persian female warriors. So in the Greek um, historic kind of drawings, the Persians the Persians are wearing yes. pants Yes, and they, de- they depicted uh, these Amazon women, women as they right. referred to them, and it turns out they're Persian warrior right women. Yeah. yeah, so speaking of the Greeks, they used to actually make fun of the Persians for wearing such ridiculous and barbaric multicolored bags for lower limbs, as they used to refer to pants. Mm. Well, if only they knew how ridiculous wearing a toga in public is considered today. So <laughs> joke's on no, them. No, no offense to our Greek fans. Uh, by the way, the togas were, were Roman. Not, yes, not Greek. but the tunics. But the Greeks wore, Greeks well, wore right. tunics. Yeah, I mean, it's a different word. But listen, uh, I, I feel like we have to do some damage control with our... <laughs> <laughs> some we of love. my best friends are Greek. <laughs> no, really. I mean, this yeah. is the ancient history. We don't want to relitigate right, the movie 300. Right. We all had our... Took our sides. Okay. Keep yeah, going. so... Yes. But in ancient times, it was a different sure, story. We've right. moved a long way, but... Yes, uh, thank you for bringing that back, Keon. <laughs> ancient Just reminding enmities, you. Yes. <laughs> so back to the Greeks. They were also horrified at the fact that both men and women wore the exact same thing <laughs> while riding on horseback. To their disgust, this signified <laughs> equality. The women moved as freely and as actively as the men. How barbaric. Can right. you imagine? Yes. <laughs> so as I've mentioned on previous episodes, the Persians were known as skilled horse riders. As such, pants were considered complete lifesavers for those riding on horses all day. This invention served a very important function. Do you know what? You know what it did? Riding horses? Yeah, well, yes. How? Okay. What did it help? Besides that, it helped... Uh, um, sunburn? I don't know. <laughs> it helped the ability well, sure, to yeah. have children? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, okay, I'm not talking about skinny jeans. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> These were like loose-fitted pants. <laughs> so, so, so they're, they're no good to me then. <laughs> I, I was thinking they were some a modern sort of slim cut... <laughs> Get real, Gian. Wait a minute. So you're, what's the question? The question is, what so did what these... So what did it uh, help with, with horseback riding? What did the like pants help with? Well, imagine. dexterity. You make sure... No. But, but okay, actually, so if, you had, if you had no pants on, you'd be able to... Well, let me paint a picture for friction, you. You're yeah. out on a horse all day long. Like, imagine days you're on a horse. Th- throughout the desert, you're just, you know, what... What do you... Okay, so uh, let me tell you straight up. In the desert? <laughs> they were wearing, what kind of pants were they wearing? In the <laughs> so this... <laughs> What's that, Shia? What does it in English? Sweat. Sweating? When you sweat and then it burns. Well, yeah, oh. yeah. Jock actually, itch. You're, you're, Jock on, itch. you're on the right track. Right. So it prevented chafing of the legs. Oh. Yes. Not indeed. They probably said that back then, Gio. That's right. Yeah, it's so it's the appropriate saying from 4 it's BC. Like, you didn't yeah. wear your pants, Hamas <laughs> That's why your leg is like. Listen, we're going to find boy. out the exact. Uh, I mean, I feel bad. We're bastardizing this poor <laughs> expression of my father, but it is useful for any occasion. Yes. Yeah. So eventually, this fashion spread throughout Asia, then Europe, and now around the world. And in modern times, as you know, skinny jeans is the new yes, way. Yes, people wear pants. <laughs> yes. Yes. Even the Greeks eventually sucked it up and threw on a pair of good old. Okay, so Settle down with the anti-Greek <laughs> screed here. <laughs> to be clear, I love my Greek friends yes, as well. Yes, Just yes. Uh, painting out the the yes. history books and what really did happen. Okay. So first came the pants, then the high heels. Ah, the irony. So while countries like, for example, France kept a 200-year ban on women wearing pants in public, which was only lifted in 2013, by the way, let it be known that Persia was one of the first nations in ancient times to adopt true feminism where women wore the pants and men wore the heels. It's all Persian to us. Yay!
you very much, Keon. <laughs> You're welcome. Sorry, did you say 2013? Yeah, yeah. So until 2013, it was, was like it was like it was a band that was set. You know, it was actually, like there was an actual band law. that they had oh. to uh, reverse. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it is an interesting juxtaposition with the uh, the rules and regulations of modern day Iran. That's for yes, sure. Yes, it, it's the right? uh, paradox of Iran. Uh, Keon, thank you. Well done. You've uh, startled us again with your incredible discoveries and and uh, educational um, information. <laughs> uh, thank you for this. The fabulous Keon, Groovy Shia, Captain Reza. You'll be back to join us with uh, Chef Haas in just a little while. Let's get to our feature guest. My feature guest today is an Iranian-American writer, visual artist, and elapsed lawyer who is deeply proud of her Iranian heritage and passionately shares her wisdom about Persian food. Azita Hushiar is perhaps best known these days as a food blogger. On her popular blog and Instagram page, Fig and Quince, she writes about Persian culture and shares modern interpretations of delicious and authentic Persian cooking recipes. Her work has been seen in various publications, including the New York Times. Azita was born in Tehran and moved to the United States at the age of 15. She studied law, passed three bar exams, but only practiced law in New York City for a brief time. Rather, she has found her calling in creative work. In fact, Azita has written and illustrated a short story called The Zigzag Girl based on her own variety of career paths. She makes collages, animated GIFs, needlepoints, and styles food, and she did a TEDx talk in Tehran not too long ago and now lives between Tehran and the D.C. area in the U.S. Given the fact that she was one of the first food bloggers writing about Persian cuisine in the diaspora, she is a good candidate to ask about what seems to be a growing trend of recognition and interest in Persian food. And right now, Azita Hushiar joins me from Washington, D.C. today. Hello. Hi, Jianjian. I'm a little bit speechless after that intro. I I don't know if I agree with wisdom, but thank you so much. That was a lovely, lovely... Am I speaking to the painter, Azita, or the food blogger, Azita, or the, or the lawyer, Azita? I can't keep track. Which one am I talking to today? That's a good question. It's actually something that I ask myself a lot of times. But, you know, like I think I was born in a um, different generation that I belong to because I think Generation Z, the Zoomers, they kind of have this uh, love for technology. They hop from job to job. They do different things. And that's really at heart. I'm kind of like this like this magpie. I love different shiny things that attract me a lot and I kind of want to delve into. So I'm kind of passionate about a, about a lot of things. But I think deep down, I'm really just somebody who likes to communicate and uh, express myself and well, that's what it boils I'm down to happy to be talking to you magpie thank you so much uh, you, you said something in your ted talk that you did in, mm -hmm. in iran in farsi mm -hmm. that, that that really stuck with me you said food is not just part of a culture or part of culture it is culture can you explain what you mean by that well I think our, every culture is interwoven with its with the food because it's the way that we we nurture each other we uh, we celebrate uh, milestones we celebrate rituals and uh, it's it's kind of like I like to call food the edible expression of a culture you can learn a lot about almost any society from the way they serve food or the interactions that they have with food so 
I don't know if I'm being eloquent about it, but that's really what so I So it follows that we learn about ourselves and our history mm -hmm. from food, memories, nostalgia, thoughts, family values, all of that? Uh, one of the way um, to kind of, you you have nostalgia in an interesting way is to through the food of your culture. You know, experiencing like um, either food that you experience and brings back memories of how you had it in your homeland or you try to replicate it. And that's why in um, pretty much every major city where they have an infusion of immigrants you find these communities that are built around food like right. chinatown koreatown japantown little india little italy right. uh, with with iranians we have you know the community in los angeles that <laughs> infamously is called tehranjalis stuff like that and these are communities where um immigrants can go there and basically taste their culture and experience their culture and also yes. share share their culture with anybody else as well who wants to have an inkling about okay what are these people about you know uh, well you know it with, with when it comes to iranians especially though mm -hmm. we like to talk about our food it's something it's something that we that, that can bring us on the same page you've talked about how your dad for example uh, was always quite a reserved Persian man, but but if you got him talking about Persian food, he would really open up, right? Yeah, I think uh, that goes back to the essence of food, I think, as uh, food being a unifying concept, a very friendly subject. It's like primal, it's uh, passionate, and it's it because it's like, it's, it's a un unifying team. It's something that people do like, they open up, like there are no red flags associated with it. And it's also something that you don't have to necessarily have an informed opinion your opinion is an informed opinion it mm. is your experience of that food so you don't have to like let's say you know you only can talk about quantum physics if you've studied it but ev all of us have memories and experiences and um just sensations with food that we want to share yeah there are red flags when you uh cross the traditional recipes a little bit like what, when, my, when my mom you know I've got this thing where I where I make korma sabzi and then I make it spicy and my mom's like why, why have you made just the korma sabzi spicy that's not korma sabzi you know so I think there's that, those kinds of red flags but I think they're relatively benign yeah that is true and I'm also like a mixed mind about that a part of me like I'm like very much like I want to keep things authentic like but at the same time food evolves I mean I mean, uh, uh, there's a famous cookbook in Iran right now, Ashpazi um, Sirtapiaz, uh, A to Z, written by a, a famous, famous translator, Ustad Najaf Darya Bandari, who recently passed away, actually, sadly. He talks about how we never, like Persian food, did not have any tomato in it. So, like, uh, like, uh, so before tomato, we only used turmeric, and our food was um, kind of like yellowish in color. Yes, and yes. then, and then tomato came in, and now tomato has usurped that. And some people, to this day, they are upset by that, including Ustad Najaf Darya Bandari. But you know, at the same time, food evolved. Or if you look at some of our stews and everything, the food actually did evolve. It didn't yes, exist yeah. per this se is something exactly that as it does now. Chef yeah. Haas talks a lot about it on this show, and I was actually shocked to find out that tomato had only existed in our in our Horesht in the last 200 years because it seems like such a staple now of, of, of every Iranian dish you know to, so yeah. so that is you're right that's an example of the evolution right yeah fusion evolving but at the same time I personally love um, when people share um, the food of different cultures and experiment with it even but I what I don't appreciate and I try to like kind of actually 
um, be a little bit more neutral about it are things that kind of borderline on cultural appropriation or taking unwarranted leaps with food. Like, for example, uh, a, a while ago, like in the Washington Post, uh, a writing about uh, Persian rice had written about like, why do you need to wash rice is not dirty laundry. And that just really pissed me off <laughs> so badly because I was like, you have no clue what you're talking about, you know? So, I mean, it's it's different if you kind of like, I mean, Cooking in and of itself is a creative endeavor. Mm. I mean, just so when you think about even how we eat certain things, aren't you like astonished? Like uh, saffron is like my go-to example. Like look at these flowers and say, oh, I'm going to like, you know, take the, the little pollens and then grind them and make this amazing spice with it. Like food is creative. There's something very ingenious, innovative in it. For the non-Iranians out there who um, don't have parents or moms who uh, <laughs> wash the rice first, and so they've just assumed that that's the way <laughs> to do things given that you're the champion food blogger and and podcaster can you explain why washing the rice is important first well for one thing it's very therapeutic <laughs> i think it's like a very beautiful ritual it's kind of like iranian food we have a lot of like masterpieces but something that i think all of us are very uh, proud of is our polo vacholo, and the way iranians the rice, make yeah. rice yeah our rice is like unique like i don't think anybody else makes rice yes, the way iranians yes, do yeah. so yeah like rice the way iranians make it where every grain uh, is separate and fluffy and pillowy and just it doesn't become this um yeah. messy starchy goo it takes some effort we, we are so wonderful so judgmental though like there's always that <laughs> that moment where you go over to a friend's a non-iranian friend's house who's cooked and they bring out the rice and and they're like so how do you feel about the meal and you're like um yeah great and you're looking at the rice and it's like stuck together minute rice exactly. you know you're like how exactly. dare they what have they done <laughs> so as i said in the intro i want to draw from your wisdom as as a uh, a, a food, food blogger. I mean, I feel like about Persian food. Mm -hmm. I feel like g grappling with our complicated identity, especially in the diaspora mm -hmm. and in a sea of stereotypes and prejudice that has been out there about Iranians, that our cuisine is something that we mm -hmm. are genuinely and universally proud of. You, but you've also said it's... Um, it's a salve for our love-hate relationship with ourselves. What do you mean by that? What I'm saying is just my opinion. So I'm not talking on behalf of all Iranians, but my general impression is that talking about Iranians as a society, I think we're very hard on ourselves. I think we almost have like a polar attitude or identity when it comes to us. On the one hand, we're a very proud nation. We're proud of so many things. And, uh, you know, we feel like we're so great about them. And at the same time, on the, on the other side of it is we are super, super critical of ourselves, either individually or as a society or history, all of that. And um, and some of it is founded, some of it is unfounded. But but yeah, when it comes to food, I think you would be hard pressed to find people to sit there and gripe about like tadik, polochoresh, sharbat. You know, it's, these are all like uh, intrinsically these are things that are delicious. And I and I've always thought that you know. Uh, we Iranians have a saying that we think we're all like poets and honar nazde Iranian astubas. And unlike the image that we have outside of Iran, Iranians are really bohemian. They're like hedonistic. They <laughs> love poetry. They like to have a good time. They like beautiful things. I mean, it's in our literature. It's in our buildings. It's in the way, you know, have you seen the architecture of the houses? Like, you know, with the fountains and the pools and the nightingales yeah, and the, yeah. the, you know, the, the, the weeping willows. So our food 
is very poetic you know the ingredients of it when you when you think about it like you know from cardamom and saffron and rose water using rose petals i think our cuisine is one of the very few cuisines in the world that we actually use uh flowers in our food mm, you right, know right, to right. to garnish food to 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 like you know add a beautiful touch to food and we also um uh, our cuisine also one of the things that i love about iranian food uh not as a patriot or as a nationalistic but just like as somebody who enjoys delicious things i love that signature flavor of like tart and sweet flavor of our food like a lot of our horses you mix like pomegranate um paste which is tart with like you know something a little bit uh sweet and they're like plums and this mixture in every spoonful you get like these um this dichotomy of taste and flavors which again also takes me back again to iranians which we are our culture is a dichotomy even it's like that whole you know light and dark and poets and whatnot i mean I, I'm straying now from the main no, subject. No, but it's but so clear just listening to you that uh, the sense of pride is there, you know, of just like, uh, and, and and that is very, uh, when I reflect upon Iranians, it's not just that we like our cuisine, we're proud of our, nobody, there's no Iranian who's going to be teaching someone about Tadik and is going to go, oh, and, and this is Tadik. It's like, and this is Tadik. Huh? Like, like we're like so proud of what we have. And, 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 that, and that generalizes to some other, um, uh, cultures that you, I mean, you talked about it, you know, where the where the diaspora communities g- uh, gravitate towards food in Chinatown and Koreatown, etc. I was, there's a, there's a new series on CNN that has mm-hmm. debuted with Stanley Tucci exploring mm. Italian food. And uh, I, I, think, I think it's supposed to be about Italian culture or something, but it's mm-hmm. it's all rooted in food. And, yeah. and so, you know, it'll be like, and then we went to the South Coast <laughs> and found a tomato and you can feel how proud he is. Is of this Italian food, and of course, Italian cuisine is is beautiful. But it it is that that is the kind of relationship that we have as well, right? Well, I mean, yes and no. I think again, it's one of those things that maybe you need to have the distance to be able to see the majesty of certain things or to appreciate some things you know how like they say like when you when you miss something it's like when somebody somebody goes away that's when you miss them i think a lot of iranians in iran um don't necessarily appreciate the treasure trove of persian food i think that perception is definitely changing it has been changing in the last few years but i mean a lot of times like they kind of like take it for granted it's easy to take for granted what you have like on a daily basis or you think nothing of it it's when you kind of have a little bit of a distance from it or you kind of gain the perspective of experiencing different foods and you're like well you know like yeah french food is awesome italian food is wonderful every food is wonderful but our food i'm not proud of it because i'm iranian i i appreciate it as somebody who's a lover of things that are beautiful and enchanting again going back yes, to the magpie yes. i love like i love that you know like we have a we have a rice that's called jeweled rice right, and it right. actually looks like a something that's but by the way the jewels. flip side of what you just said is true as well mm-hmm. in terms of the proximity to the food etc because oftentimes Persian food I've noticed outside of Iran, uh, mm-hmm. especially in communities in places where there isn't a huge community. I mean, now you can find all kinds of inventive restaurants in Toronto, say, that are, 
are are creating a, a tapestry of different kind of Persian mm-hmm. cuisine. But but mm-hmm. for the most part, it's like kababis. You know, it's like kabob becomes the equivalent of Persian food. Whereas from <laughs> what I understand in in Tehran, there's these places that are doing a, a thousand different versions of tachin, and you know, like yes. and so there's actually more creativity uh, back in Iran than there is in the diaspora sometimes. Well, I went back to Iran for the first time about six or seven years ago, and it's just a marvel. I, I remembered going to bazaars as a kid, right? But it's a different thing going back there as an adult, and it's you just, I mean, there is so much sensory, uh, a wealth of sensory experiences. It's, it's like going into Alibaba's cave, like with all of these <laughs> wonderful things, like just like the spices and the way they pile all of these like amazing spices and different types of spices. Or one of the examples I like to use a lot is just like the bread. Like I remembered, um, Sangak bread and Tuftun and Lavash. But then when, um, Excuse me. oh, Bad Badi, Bad Badi, I forgot. Yeah. That's Please. my favorite too. Let's actually. see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But then like, you know, when you, travel like um from one city to the other you realize that like every city and practically not just every city every town every village has its own special uh bread uh, like they have there are so there's really a wealth of an um, unbelievable wealth of types of food in Iran. I mean, I talked about this in my talk as well, which is that like I, I went to the uh, food market in uh, Babalsar and these women had made these, all of these like homemade pomegranate paste or uh, plum paste. And each one of these things was just like marvels that, you know, meanwhile, the woman who's made that is sitting on the ground, you know, offering it with no pretensions. It's just like, looks like any old thing. And and this is something that, let's say, if a hipster in Brooklyn started a kiosk and was selling these things, it would just like be like, you know, everybody would be <laughs> right, raving about right, it. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah. this trip you took back to Iran and then you end mm-hmm. up doing the TED Talk. Um, you said you felt homesick. And that was one of the reasons you wanted to return to Iran, and, and you, you hadn't been there for you know over three decades. Um, yeah, h- homesick is quite something for someone to say who hasn't lived somewhere for thirty-five years. I found that curious um, that you would be homesick for a place after spending most of your life living and working in America. Um, tell me what it was to to go back there. What you discovered about yourself. <laughs> Um, I mean, I want to tell you so many stories. I don't know where to begin. I did this funny thing when I lived in San Francisco. I was like pining to go to Iran and I would look at the globe and I would like kiss the part of the globe that was Iran. And then I would laugh at myself. I mean, this is like after like I had, I hadn't been in Iran for like over 10 years. I would daydream about like uh, my uncle when we lived in Iran, my uncle who had studied in Germany, he drove all the way from Germany in a car back then when you could. And I always like thought that was the coolest thing ever mm-hmm. so in my in my mind i kind of like daydreamed about like would it be possible can i go to europe get a car and drive to iran <laughs> stuff like that i daydreamed about right. it and i like you know but at the same time i don't know how to explain it it's kind of like you can't explain why you love something or why you feel a certain way i'll tell you another story actually if i may i remember being in school in iran and we were studying french history and we were studying napoleon bonaparte and we got to the part where he was exiled and i remember like i distinctly remember thinking what a lame punishment so that's all they did they just said you can't live in france like (laughs) that is so lame and and then it wasn't until like you basically experience something that is approximation of being exiled, whether it's voluntary or involuntary. And you just realize that for me, it was definitely something that I felt to the core of my being because 
again, like I was proud of being Iranian. I always have felt that I am an Iranian. I never lied about being from Iran. Even when we first moved to the US, the hostages happened and it wasn't fun identifying as being from Iran. So I don't know. And but I remember, Azita, and you've also said that going back to Iran mm -hmm. um, killed nostalgia for you. <laughs> No, 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 which is really yeah. important because you're speaking kind of dreamily about Iran, but you get back there. I mean, we had Fadi Shafinuri on the show not too long ago and uh, mm -hmm. the, the great uh, young musician in, from Texas. And, and you know, he's growing up in America and he, he's dreaming of going back to Iran, a place where he's really going to fit in, you know, and I can't wait to get to Iran. I can't wait to get to Iran. He gets to Iran and he's hanging out in Tehran and he's feeling all proud of himself. And then he realizes that the other Iranians there see him as a tourist. You know, he's like, no, but I'm Iranian. <laughs> They're coming like sure pal you just turned up here a few weeks ago and you think you're iranian uh so tell me about killing nostalgia for you when you get back to iran what that means i did want to go and see what is life like there what does it mean and it was so weird being on a plane on my first return back to iran with the lonely planet guide to iran in my pack in my suitcase it felt strange going back to my homeland with a guidebook but i needed right, it right, you know right. and and the identity part is something that it was an eye-opener for me i did go there on the wings of nostalgia driven by nostalgia and it did kill nostalgia for me because nostalgia is like pure profound sensation but its root literally is in the past it's kind of like miss havisham sitting in her wedding clothes 30 years after she's been jilted mm. so while i sympathize and you feel it like it's a sincere sensation but nostalgia may be dead but some of the things that i just love and i cannot help loving till the day i die about iran and my country and again i'm like getting a little bit emotional about it is that like you know like like to this day like when i see the the mountains and they have the snowy peak i kind of crumble it, it, it's it's enchanting to me like when i see the crows or uh, whatever like that doesn't go away so nostalgia goes away but it was wonderful to kind of go in there and when i returned i was determined that i didn't want to be a tourist and i didn't want to i wanted to lay claim to saying that I am an Iranian and I want to experience what it feels like to really live here, you know, if that makes sense. Did I answer well, you? It, what the most curious part of it is, or, or, or a very interesting part of it, is that there are people who are in Iran, who have grown up in Iran, who have, they work in Iran, their families are in Iran, their loved ones are in Iran, they love Iran, that so they're not going to leave, and that's understandable. But, mm -hmm. but you know, we regularly talk on this show, especially since we're dealing with the diaspora, to the scores of people, exponentially so, as you know, millions now who have left Iran, especially in the last two decades, want to leave Iran, uh, need to leave Iran, are sad about Iran, had to escape Iran. So it's usually the opposite trajectory to yours, right? You're you're picking up from America where you presumably after, you know, a few decades and you're a lawyer and you're a writer and you've been in the New York Times, you can fit in just fine. And you're picking up and going back in the other direction. That says a lot about how much Iran has resonated for you. And so that's the question of of why you would pick it over the United States. I'm not just, I mean, initially when I went back, I thought, you know, I realized I've met a number of people who are exactly have done the exact same thing as I have done. Like I haven't been like a snowflake. I actually have a number of friends in, in Tehran where um, they kind of like packed up 
and went back to Iran either temporarily or permanently. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of like a calling, I say. So there's no question that I belong there. But once I was there, people told me that I spoke with an accent and um, they, they, they did think of me as like an other to some extent. I, I Iranians are <laughs> don't want to say nosy that, that's 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 not fun but they ask very direct questions things that you wouldn't like let's say in american society you don't ask people how old are you how much money do you make what do you th those are things that you don't ask but in iran <laughs> once you go back people ask you they feel free to ask you whatever they they, they damn well right, please right, which right. is fine it's part of the culture but one of the questions i was asked again and again and again is like why have you returned why are you here like almost with the not being suspicious but kind of like really bewildered and right. and then and it didn't makes sense to just like say uh, but, you but, know, but as you tell, Iran, Iran will be there. I mean, it's not, you know, so that your choice to want to live there, it, it's, it is feeding your soul in a way. I'm not arguing with you. I think it's great mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're feeling great about being there. Uh, uh, you know, and I get it in the I, I was born in London, England. I left when I was eight. Why, why would I? But when I go back to London every single time, I go, oh, mm -hmm. this is my home. <laughs> I remember this. You know, it just feels, you just feel it immediately. But I don't. I don't sort of uh, question myself as to why. I mean, I, I sort of understand why I, I, listen, I live in Canada. I've lived in New York. That's my life now. I, I'm not necessarily, and I've, we, we make those choices. There's a vast difference between the contemporary United States and the situation in Iran right now that leads a lot of Iranians, as you know, including the people mm -hmm. working on this show, to have to mm -hmm. leave Iran despite their love for it. So that's mm -hmm. the question, right? It's And that's why they're bewildered in Iran as well, going, okay, so what is it? What's the magic sauce that that wants you to stay here well for me it was i kind of happened organically but honestly it had its roots in kind of like i manifested i manifested it to happen organically because the first time i went back again like i said i was a tourist i was just like all you know gawking and everything touched by everything and and i you know i, I everything was new to a huge extent so a part of me just wanted to like experience the real life there and um you know tedx happened and once i was in tehran because of uh preparing for tedx i kind of fell in with a lot of this crowd that were like in the startup uh, scene and a lot of like really interesting super cool really intelligent awesome people exactly the kind of people that i wanted to like get to know and it just so happened that i had this opportunity to um have a startup also in the back of my mind it's something that i have I had wanted to just go and explore the food and culture of Iran. Like I, I would love to like at some point write about it and I did, and I wanted to like experience it firsthand. So in some ways there is no mystery. And also sadly, I have to say, I don't necessarily feel that Tehran is home home, but by that token, I'm one of those people, maybe I'm a little bit nomadic. And there's also like this feel, this wonderful feeling like, I remember when the first time I had gone back, like the windows were open and I, I was here overhearing a conversation and people were talking in Farsi, which like, duh, well, anywhere in Iran, they are speaking Farsi, but it was so amazing. I was like, people are speaking Farsi. Like, you know, it, it was just, it, you just feel there's, there's a part of you that does feel like a fish that has By the way, you, you can get that in North York here too, as well. If you just, <laughs> I just open the window and. It's not, listen, I, I'm going to cut you off because I fear you're you're becoming a bad influence. I'm going to lose my whole staff. They're, they're all listening, going, "Yeah, why don't we just go back to Iran? What's the what are we doing here?" Uh, 
<laughs> but I but but your passion is palpable. Let me get back to the uh, our our yeah our focus the food because I don't want to keep you forever and I've got some specific questions that I'm really interested in. You know what's curious about you and and uh, what's what's admirable I should say is you mm-hmm. were really a pioneer. I mean your food blog around Persian cuisine has existed for a few years. Mm-hmm. And Azita, I feel like f- Persian food blogging and internet love for Persian cuisine seems to have skyrocketed all of a sudden. I'm seeing sexy photos of Fesenjun and mm. Adaspolo wherever I turn online. Do you agree that this seems to become a trend? And if so, why? Why do you think that has, that's happened now? Hashtag food porn. <laughs> but um, to kind of like unpack that a little, absolutely. But I don't think it's just been Persian food. Persian food has just been a part of it. Food in general, um, I think what happened is that once internet happened to food and brought food out of the, do- the exclusive domain of like, let's say, uh, food magazines and celebrity chefs and these uh, TV shows like uh, TV uh, Food Network and all of that, where again, we're like the domain of very, a very limited domain of uh, certain people. Not everybody had access to that. The internet happened, blogging happened, and it opened, it gave this platform to people to express themselves. And and one of these genres of blogging that really took off was food blogging. Um, I'm amongst one of the first people who started blogging about that. But again, that credit actually goes to uh, two blogs, Turmeric and Saffron, and My Persian Kitchen. Mm. They existed before anybody else did, right? Um, and I remember like um, reading turmeric and saffron and really liked it and all of a sudden i had like an inkling i was like great like under the pretext of talking about food you can really like talk about culture so that was for me but after blogging what really happened is social media which really took food from this thing which is um nourishment and nurturing and whatever and just made it sexy and made it really cool right instagram uh, right yeah i mean food went food went from being part of the culture to being pop culture it's as cool now to talk about food as it is to talk about art or cinema or literature or whatnot and again going back to that part where you don't need to be have a quantum physicist you know you, you can you can talk about it and and also Food is like this thing, which is um, primal, it's visceral, it's fuel, it's nurturing, it's nourishing. At the same time that it can be the most banal and mundane thing, which it is, because we have to eat every day, stuff our faces every day. At the but, same time, but, 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 it, but sorry, slow down, go ahead. slow down. <laughs> okay, you, sorry. You're saying so much. It's that there's, uh, but when you talk about social media and you talk about mm-hmm. how, I'm guessing that you would argue as well that this is. Um, say Instagram and say posting those photos, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. imbued with a sense of identity and belonging Absolutely. related to the food, right? Absolutely. I mean, like, let's say the primitive man, the caveman would go and like go back to his cave and draw the buffalo that he maybe hunted and ate. And now, like, you know, we go and take a photograph of the buffalo burger that right, we had. Right. And, and all of it kind of like a little bit, it goes back to the sense that like technology may have changed. We no longer have the, the walls of the cave. We have like, you know, our, our, our smartphones, et cetera, et cetera. But that need to express, to communicate, to basically just kind of like announce, I am here. Like, I think it's like, you know, saying i i i post to instagram therefore i am it's one of that's <laughs> right, one of right. that's that's one facet of it but i take a photograph facet- of my food and therefore <laughs> i am yeah, yeah. exactly it's like you you kind of like putting your banner of like your but another facet of it which is really more um 
it's more earnest and it's more emotional is that, uh, you know, I, I this is some, somebody told me, um, that in Korean, um, a family literally translates to people who eat together. So mm. it kind of like sharing food is also like a very intimate thing as well. I mean, food is just like something that we humans love to explore and talk about and it allows us to express ourselves. Like, um, uh, Franz Kafka, like Kafka, like probably, Arguably, I think he's one of the grumpiest people on earth. He has this really interesting quote about uh, food where he says that uh, so long as you have food in your mouth, you have all the answers for the time being. <laughs> and I love that saying because in a sense, it, it kind of like tells you all you need to know about food. Food is comfort. I think whether we know it or not, and again, this is I'm just saying this, maybe it's like all bullshit and nonsense, but I just feel like whether we are conscious of it or not, all of us, we're always grappling with this existential angst of who we are, what we're doing, where we're going, and we think we all experience it on, on different levels. And food is this thing that is comfort, okay. it's sensual, and it's lovely. So and- uh, so now that posting photos of food of our Persian cuisine <laughs> and food blogging has become more the norm, um, take mm-hmm. take me back a few steps. You, when you started, okay. when you started writing about Persian food, and you and you, you, you I mean, you, you want to start something that, uh, as I understand, it was about Iranian culture, and food was this great portal for broader, yeah. broader conversation. Besides your own uh, abilities and talents, when it comes to to food. Uh, What surprised you about the reactions you started to get when you started your blog? What was the initial kind of um, uh, opinion that people would give you? Um, I wasn't necessarily surprised per se, but this we're going back like, I mean, blogging has really changed a lot. But back then, when I was blogging, you would get a lot of comments. So it's that sense of community was like a lovely surprise. Actually, I do know how to answer this. Like, I have made a number of really good friends, thanks to starting this blog. I think it again, it it, it wasn't that much of a surprise because I knew that food was an attractive subject so and there are so many ways that you can like with photography and styling like even make it more enticing so it wasn't necessarily so much of a surprise but it was heartwarming you know to see that people were interested you know i don't it's it's hard for me to get a real gauge on this um living in toronto right now where mm-hmm. there where there's so much it, it's fat of wound the, the the food you know there's <laughs> a lot of persian food here a lot of persian restaurants uh, um uh, caterers you know people posting stuff so it's hard to get a real sense of what what folks are experiencing in in uh, kentucky or rural australia or you know outside of the big cities in germany but do you think Persian food is going to have its moment like the way we have seen with, say, Thai food or sushi, which have become these international you know, cuisines that you can find in any urban center in, in scores of restaurants that will serve them and there'll they'll be a fondness and we all know what Pad Thai is and, uh, and, and, and certain types of sushi. Um, there's certainly more awareness of Persian food in the big cities than there was a couple of decades ago. Do you yeah. think that we're going to see that kind of explosion of Persian food? I mean, absolutely. I almost want to say, God damn it, why is it taking so long? Because honestly, um, it, again, intrinsically, I think Iranian food is very enticing, with some minor exceptions, like dur, kalepache, whatever, which are like kind of acquired taste. Um, the rest of the, you know, culinary repertoire of Iranian food looks 
gorgeous, it tastes delicious. And uh, yeah, I think it's inevitable because A, we are, food is a global thing right now. It, you know, food is global, the conversation around it is global and the presentation and experience of it. And I think all it's going to take is like, um, do you know that place called Italy in um, sure. New York? Yeah. yeah. So We have I've an Italian like, in Toronto now as well, yeah. Oh, see, like, yeah. see, I've always dreamt about of like, uh, having something like that for Iranian food, where under one roof you would have not just the kebab and the rice, which duh, everybody will all know about, but all of those other things from from the the sharbats to the cordials to the you know the pickles to idea. whatever. Yeah, yeah, I like to to have all of that in one place so that everybody can come and experience like the different um, uh, degrees and the, the, all of the, the wealth of it, not just like one or two dishes, but long-winded answer to your question and I didn't even answer it. Yes, I think it will have its heyday. To some extent, a lot of like foodies, people who are foodie, they do discover Persian food blogs. They do comment about it, drool over it. A friend of mine says like, if you want to get a lot of likes, just post a photo about Tariq. So, you know, definitely for sure. In the US, this has taken longer, but I I've heard um, and I've read that in London, for example, Persian food is definitely has been discovered, maybe not on the same level of being as popular as Indian food, becoming part of the normal fare of everybody. But maybe that will happen too. So, so much has changed in the last mm-hmm. two decades. You know, I remember mm-hmm. um, I, my, my mind goes to this, um, a quick anecdote. I remember in the late 1990s, I was on tour with my band. And, mm-hmm. and we were playing uh, in Washington, D.C., and we had, uh, I think we had a, a day off or something like that. So um, the boys all came over, abandoned crew, to uh, my Auntie Alia's uh, <laughs> place. Uh, and she was so gracious to do this. Uh, I can remember it so well. And she, and she made korma sabzi for everybody because uh, she, she knows that I love korma sabzi. And, yeah. and the, all of the band and crew are, are guys who, you know, <laughs> are back through generations in Canada, English, you know, like they're, they're not, they're not Iranian. Uh, uh, and um, they reacted like this was the first time they'd experienced these <laughs> exotic, it was so exotic, you know, as if you've yeah. taken them to somewhere in the deep, you know, and I feel like now, at least at a place in Toronto, I mean, these same guys would be like, yeah, you know, yeah, I've had Persian, you know, it, would, it wouldn't mm-hmm. be as extraordinary. This was only two decades ago, right? This was only mm-hmm. the late 1990s. So that, mm-hmm. that change is definitely happening and yet um, I think about a conversation I had with a guy who there's a restaurant called Sultani uh, restaurant it's a little mm-hmm. strip mall off off uh, La Brea uh, okay. and Sunset in, in, in Los Angeles and uh, I talked to the owner there one time he says that was the first restaurant or one of the first restaurants, Persian restaurants ever to open in LA. And and I said, why isn't Persian food like like sushi or something like that? You know, why isn't it everywhere? And 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 he and there's there's certainly versions of this that have happened. There's Moby Dick, as you know, in in DC. That's a, a little yeah. bit more of a fast food kind of version. Yeah. Of, but yeah. he said the problem is that Persian food is still perceived as something very heavy. So most people like say office workers or people who are looking to have a lunch don't don't think of it as a kind of food that we're going to um, be able to just have a simple lunch with because it's it's going to be too heavy to digest. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that's a if that's a stereotype that we have to bust. I mean, that could be a part of it. And I, uh, you know, I forget his name now, but that guy we, we talked about him, actually, the guy in uh, New York City who. Uh, oh, Saeed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, the like Taste I of actually, Persia. 
yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. taste of persia and i think he has done a lot of he's he's done a good job of like introducing like uh kind of a um, very approachable and readily available authentic persian food but i remember actually i talked to him when i was in manhattan like one time um I, you know, I actually met him when he was working as a, in a print print shop as well. But anyway, we were talking about what he was doing, and he said one of the challenges of 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 offering Persian food is how expensive it is. Like just to like make gourmet sabzi, all of the herbs that it takes. You know, he said like uh, you know it just it's just like let me just explain. Time. This is a guy, yeah. um, Said Pourquet, I think is his name. Yeah, he's on 18th Street in Manhattan in a yeah. pizza place. <laughs> He's in the corner of a pizza place. It's called Taste of Persia. If you haven't, if you don't know about this already and you live in New York City, you got to check him out. And Definitely. each day he makes, he doesn't have a grill, so there's no kebabs or anything, but each day he makes two choresh and, and an osh. And yeah. so you go there and he's just like, he's like sitting in the window of a pizza place and it's delicious. It's great. Um, no, really good food. Although like as a business that's... model, the fact that there's one guy in New York City that we know <laughs> speaks to the fact that it hasn't really taken off yet, right? Do you think it may have something to do with the fact that, that, that actually goes back to the kind of the crux of like my TED talk as well, which is that like, we don't, maybe us Iranians, because by now, you know, a lot of Iranians have made so many headways in so many facets from Pierre Omidyar to, you know, Google, you know, one of the co-founders yes. to you name it, you know. Um, and then meanwhile, like, um, I think maybe part of it is it has to do with that food maybe is not considered as prestigious to kind of get into and like make something of it because I'm hard pressed like uh, talking to you like yeah why haven't why haven't we um, kind of put it on the map but well, I don't want to uh, I, I don't want to uh, sort of um, have everything descend back into geopolitics but yeah as somebody who grew up as a kid like you did in the, in the west in the 80s you, you wouldn't want to open a restaurant called the iranian restaurant <laughs> in, in, in anywhere in america or canada persian. for that matter it just wasn't you, can call it you could call it persian maybe i mean it was it just wasn't something that's going to happen you know so so the, this is you know and and still i mean there's we we fight those kind of um oh, prejudices so that that probably has something to do with it as well right but we yeah. have people like i got to give him another shout out just because he's our, our brother here on the show uh, chef haas in san francisco Hasare, he you know he's working at google and feeding the google employees uh, around mm -hmm. you know uh, across the world or wherever with a, a common menu and he's infusing it with all this kind of persian food so i mean there's that that's one way right where it's becomes it, it it finds ground in in a, in a broad population who are discovering and going oh this is delicious what is this right so mm -hmm. um we just need a lot more of that i guess mm -hmm. definitely let me ask you um two final questions because i've okay. kept you so long first of all you asked me before we came on that you wanted to give a shout out to some really creative folks working in iran and doing podcasts do you, you want to <laughs> say who you wanted to give a shout out to yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, I love podcasts. And, uh, so that's why I'm really thrilled and happy to be on this podcast with you. And you're, lo you're, you know, this is a great podcast, by the way. Thank you. Um, the, for those people who do speak Farsi, the two podcasts that I would, uh, really, really recommend to check it out. One is called Metronome. And it actually has something to do with nostalgia as well, because in Metronome, the podcaster, uh, really 
dives deep into the history of popular songs and um, and traces their roots and it's a really like pleasant pleasant and informative podcast to listen to another one is called radio div and that one also is centered around music but what they do is that they take a city or a country and in one episode they basically share a vignettes of um, their history literature and music and i find them both to be really really amazing podcasts and and another shout out that i wanted to give was um uh-oh. There's to... a list of shout-outs. <laughs> no, okay, I'll save that maybe. No, but like, I, I, I don't know if it's, uh, I think because of COVID, it's no longer happening or it's on pause. But, uh, you know, as, aside from TEDx Tehran, which, again, I was so astonished when the first time I heard, oh, my God, there is a TEDx in Tehran. And yes, there is. I've been to a few and they're just really wonderful and amazing. And I'm always astonished and amazed by the resourcefulness and all of the stamina and the talent that, people, especially the young generation, um, offer and bring to the table. And I hope that they can keep that energy and, you know, optimism. Well, you are such a, you're such a fountain of energy and, and, <laughs> and, and wisdom. I, before I let you go, in as much as you see your blog and, and talking about Persian food as a way to educate people about Persian culture, uh, maybe I can finish off by asking you a general question about our culture mm-hmm. and how we are perceived. Um, uh, and I'm sorry if this is a, a, a tough one to, to get your head around right away, but, but just off the top of your head, what is the greatest misconception about Iranians today? Honestly, again, that I think uh, that we are angry. I remember um, Marjan Satrapi, the graphic artist who wrote Persepolis. Yes. Um, I'm super proud of her, especially because I actually like think her book Persepolis kind of like revived the genre of graphic uh, uh, comic graphic books. Brilliant. It really yes, did that. Yes, it, she yes. really did that. And I remember like reading an interview about her and she was saying that um, at one of her book signings, after she had read from her book, somebody came up to her and said, oh, my gosh. I didn't know that Iranians laugh. I had no idea. And that just kind of like actually, to this day, right now, when I was just telling you about it, it makes me shiver all over because that is like such a, that is like such a, it's, it's just like an, dangerous thing to 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 have that perception of an entire culture entire civilization i don't know how many millions of iranians there are i'm sorry i'm ignorant about that you keep talking about my wisdom i don't know about that either but yeah so like i think the biggest misconception about us is that we are a nation of like angry people and Mm. again i'm telling you if you guys go and read our literature see our films talk to iranians you will see that Iranians are hedonistic. We like to <laughs> spread. We like to spread. We're too gluttonous on- to be angry. We've got so much to eat. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. We love to sit. Uh, we love to go to a park, spread our little blankets, have our picnic, make our samovar, make our tea, and just like and you know somebody puts on, um, uh, you know, starts singing and dancing and uh, yeah. So I would say again, in my humble opinion, that's the biggest misconception about us amongst a number of misconceptions azita it's been a pleasure we have to do it again soon thank you for this oh thank you so much it was a pleasure same same and i'm again i'm really proud and flattered to have this opportunity to talk to you guys and i really admire the work that you're doing and wish you a lot of luck and with what i'm hamisha mizumbashi oh wow you really are a listener <laughs> thank you so much for this talk to you soon thank you take care Bye. 
Azita Hushiar, writer, illustrator, storyteller, TEDx Tehran, 2016 speaker, and a lapsed attorney. Uh, Azita has a podcast and blog about food and culture in Iran. It's also an Instagram page that you should check out called Fig and Quince. Fig and Quince. Azita Hushiar joined us from Washington, D.C. today. Phone's back on for Groovy Shia, Captain Reza, the fabulous Keon. Uh, I, you know, I can't wait to have Azita Hushiar back on the show. She she just had so much to say. I, it was hard to contain her. Mm-hmm. Uh, what an so many interesting observations. Uh, I very much enjoyed that chat. Um, who would like to chime in, Captain Reza? You're chomping at the bit. I know. What the thing? One of the things that she said that it could not have been more true. And I realized that, especially when after I left Iran, is uh, how uh, curious, for the lack of better word, the Iranians are about uh, other people's business which is oh not i see the tactless thing, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah yeah she was like there are certain things that it culturally is appropriate to ask in iran right. how much money do you make how old are you how much do you weigh <laughs> right, right. things that are extremely inappropriate to ask of uh, somebody you just meet or a stranger and whatnot and uh it's it, I, I never thought of it like I, ne- I was never it never occurred to me because it doesn't happen here as often even when the iranians that you meet yeah. they assimilate assimilated pretty well within the culture so but uh, for her to live in Iran, grown up here, and uh, it was it was it was interesting. It was very interesting. Yeah, that's. I mean, uh, those people hitting me up on uh, Facebook or Instagram, you know, for the first time. Uh, <laughs> 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 so it's always like yeah. what what we we don't even know each other what? uh they're very <laughs> yeah we're, we're honest with each other um ca- uh, captain shia groovy, <laughs> groovy shia what did you want okay, to say what what i'm going to save from this interview for myself was the that saying from kafka that uh, as long as food in your mouth all problem is solved that's <laughs> right that's, that's right. really there was also um I think, therefore, I am the new the new derivation oh, of that yes. being. Mm. I take photos of my food, therefore, I am. You know, to explain the sort of uh, food porn on Instagram. Um, Keon, you know, I'm not. I'm no food expert. I'm sure many people are not. So I I gained so much from this interview. And one point I want to draw on that really stood out for me is when she said she was walking through some marketplace in Iran. I don't. I forget where it was. And there were these ladies making some sort of jam or something. And she was thinking to herself, "This is a marvel. This is a culinary creation. If you were to bring this back to Western culture, hipsters would rave about it. You know, yeah. it'd be in the New York yeah, Times. Yeah, and yeah, that's so yeah. fascinating to me. I hope we come to that point in time where Iranian food becomes more mainstream, where it's a known fact that Iranian food is d- divine. Well, also the point where it, it'll be easier for some of us to return and go, go to Iran because yeah. 
when she just talked about just the sensory uh, experience, adventure of just landing yeah. in Iran and, and in Tehran. And I, I mean, it's it's amazing, right? Beautiful. And you really look forward to that. Yeah. Uh, because this is about food, I got to bring in our segment right away here because I, He's been listening along, uh, and I, I'm curious to hear what uh, Chef Haas uh, thought of uh, Azita Hushiar and some of the observations we made during that interview. Let me do the proper introduction. He's the captain of cuisine, the culinary colonel, the Tabrizi talisman, the Farsi food meister, the Turkish tradesman. It's your Chef Hos Zare, and this is Rook Hospitality. <laughs> This is your chef Hassare. And this is Rock Hassan. Hello, Chef Haas. Hello, 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 everybody. Greetings from uh, San Francisco and uh, greetings from Toronto. You're in San Francisco. Uh, you you were listening in on that interview with um, the food blogger Azita Hushiar from Fig and Quince. A- any observations you want to make? One of the most important thing that she mentioned, I want to sh- repeat it again. She said, um, being immigrant in your own country, that's, I wrote on my uh, social media, being immigrant is very tough, but feeling immigrant in your own country, that's tough as to swallow. And she mentioned that. One. Meaning you went back and, to Iran and, 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 but, I, but, and felt like an immigrant there. Absolutely. Right. That's what she said exactly. Not exactly the word, but she felt that she's different. She speaks language different. People yes. look at her different. By even looking at you people, they know you are not from, you are from there, but you don't live there. They can even smell you that you are not from there. So that's very bizarre. Are you, uh, were you familiar with her, with her blog, with her site, the Fig and Quinn's? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, I used to follow her, and then I had a pleasure when the first time, actually in 2015, I went to Iran after 30 years, and I met her. She invited me to one of these uh, startup young generation uh, group, and I went. I met her. Very fascinating. Oh wow! Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, and I have also quoted a couple of the from her blog in my social media, and I love her uh, writing skills and her. The way she looks at the uh, food, especially Iranian food, we've we've talked about this a little bit, and I and I mentioned to her, you know, the work that you're doing infusing Persian cuisine, say, into uh, uh, into feeding the bellies of Google employees around the world, you know, with the work you do with Google. But um, I should just put the question to you about whether you believe uh, that this is a moment for for Persian cuisine. I mean, she she agreed that there's been this huge uptick in social media interest in Persian cuisine but she also said that's across the board as food has become culture and food has become status in a way that people used to talk about uh, you know their record collections or their design or something like that and now they talk about food as something to be proud of uh, or something to display um, do, do you think that it is a particular moment for Persian cuisine or um, or is that a bit of a fantasy uh, no, it, it is in the right track going on right now. But the one thing that I am happy that she mentioned too, we are right now not angry about our food. We are in peace that we know. Persia used to be a huge country and the food came from different regions and it's also evolved and developed. So right now with wrong generation, we are okay to acknowledge that there's no ethnicity of the food. There's no authentic word doesn't exist. There's a document that very started but it's been evolved so we are accepting that one that's makes the road 
very smooth for the bloggers, new generation, and also mainstream of the Iranian food right now in social media accepted. This is your mantra that uh, food is constantly evolving and that there shouldn't be strict rules or parameters placed around Persian cuisine, right? Exactly. What I like was she mentioned that when she was talking about the northern Iran, she went, she was talking, my mouth was so, salvation when I was listening to her, about this pomegranate, plums, and the wild pear uh, uh, paste that day. Those are the paste we used to use our food about sweet and sour. Tomato paste wasn't uh, in our culture, so we used to use this beautiful, delicious uh, wild uh, fruit paste in our dishes. And... Uh, those are the ones we want to bring it back, and those I will be interested in, and I love the way she described it. All right. Uh, by the way, I think your mouth was salivating, not salvation, although, I, although when you're yeah, speaking, your mouth is salvation <laughs> to us here at Rook. Um, well, I wanted to mention, I used to be a little, um, the, uh, you told me a couple of times in my interview, I slowed down. But now I can see the passion we have, same as <laughs> you all You slowed down her a few times too. I know. So I, I didn't want to sound uh, like I was mansplaining to her. I was. I was. But I really. <laughs> she's got such interesting things to say, and I, I was like, S "Slow down! You've got so much <laughs> calm that we got time, you know." And yes, you were doing very well, by the way, Haas. You've you've slowed down a lot. You have. I think <laughs> my theory is that people who have a lot are very smart people and have a lot in their heads, um, and who aren't practiced performers necessarily in terms of oration, you know, in terms of speaking, um, you're, you're racing to get all the things that are in your head out because there's so much there. I've, I've noticed that with you. You've got so much information to impart with us. And, and so I've been saying, just give us one or two and, and slow it down because we can't contain <laughs> with the speed. Um, speaking of which, let's get to this week's episode of hospitality. So what is it that you're going to be telling us about today? Today, we're going to talk about the, the most precious and delicious and expensive spice in the world, saffron, which is oh. saffron flower. It comes from flower uh, crocus sativus or saffron crocus. It's based on the flower, has a three beautiful crystal red stigma, which is dried and becomes saffron. Mm. So saffron is a flower. Yes. Why is, I mean, it's a given for anyone who's Iranian, anyone who knows Persian cuisine, that uh, saffron is a big part of uh, things. Why is saffron important in Persian cuisine? Well, it's right now it's mainstream on the, our food. We know how to use our food is for coloring, for aroma. The aroma is the, the most the beautiful spice in the food we have. But the sh it will be when we get talk about history, you'll be shocked that food. The saffron was never used at the beginning for food. It was for medicine and perfume and dyeing agent. And uh, later on, Iranian, they start using in the food. Even they was a saying, Greece, Greek, they say, don't eat that red saffron uh, food is they are trying to drug you in Iran. So it was very fascinating to learn that. It was used for perfume? Perfumes, uh, uh, dye for carpets, medicine, and only clothes came to food was when they dropped a few pieces in their hot water tea or the wine as a medicinal aspect. And, yeah. when, and when did it start getting used for food in Persian cuisine? This one was uh, around the, roughly about a se a seven to eight uh, century in Iran. Uh. And, but before that was, the, again, uh, uh, basically saffron native to Southwest Asia. And uh, they documented from the Assyrian in the Baghdad area, 
but there is a hazy area. People, some people they say is first time cultivated in the Greece, but or in the Esfahan. So that's not sure. So it can be Esfahan, it can be Greece. Why is it? What you, you mentioned earlier, as you were describing saffron, you said it's expensive. It it really is. Why why is it so expensive? Well, the short and sweet is labor of love. But I can give you a couple numbers slowly so you can just let it sink. Number one, to harvest saffron, it has a two weeks per time to harvest the saffron. Otherwise, it gets bad. That's number one. Number two, you have 48 hours of labor to pick 150,000 flowers, each has a three a sigma, 40 hours. And this is gives you 150, about one kilo, two after two pounds of the saffron. But that's a sweat saffron flowers then you take the stigmas out of it which is reduces by half and then after dried drying you, you the take the what out of it i'm sorry the, the flowers because the flower has a three thread and the weight is almost reduced by one third because uh. the, when you you first you pick the flowers that's one labor then you bring it home by hand you take the traits or stigmas from the flowers that's uh. the second labor it's a, and right now they do some machinery, but damage is the saffron. Then when you dry these stigmas or threads, you lose one uh, three quarters of the weight. So, so if you have a one pound, uh, one pounds of the uh, uh, saffron, you're gonna end up by four ounces of the dry saffron. Right, right, right. So, so a, a lot of work to get very little uh, out of all of that. Little, exactly. Labor. Right. So you always have a teaching element to uh, to this uh, to the hospitality segment, and it's what you make the video uh, about and for. So, what are you teaching us this week with respect to saffron? Well, when you are in your own restaurant, you you know how to use it as saffron. But when I start working, actually, today is three years anniversary at Google's. When you work in a big corporation, congratulations! You, thank you. You see that half some chefs they are not familiar with saffron, half they use this expensive saffron, and they are not properly using it. And your heart goes, or you know, it goes. It, it hurts your heart because you see <laughs> this expensive saffron. Right. So. Proper way of blooming saffron, it saves the money and it gives you the best product. So, so you're going to teach video, us the, the way to properly uh, bloom saffron? Correct. Uh, okay. There are two ways to do that. Uh, that, that uh, they're both ways perfect, but it's one is easier than the other one. You don't need that much of the headache. So basically, anytime you have a saffron dry or spice, you need a heat element or liquid. So in this case, we are doing it with one with the hot water and one with the ice. Ice is easier, then you don't have to burn the saffron, but the hot water, those Iranian they use in the moms and grandmas, yeah. they, by experience, they know the temperature of the water. But temperature is supposed to be between 95 to 100, or Fahrenheit it would be like 190 to 200. You keep that one to give the best color and aroma from saffron you don't burn the saffron flavor but the ice and putting on the ice is the best method putting it on ice yes H how it, does that how does that turn the saffron into how do you, how are you blooming it through ice first you okay that's a good question you take the saffron thread and then you ground the saffron in the uh, mortar and pistol or grounder but make sure that piece of equipment always used for saffron, so you don't contaminate the flavor. Right. And after grounding, you put a spoonful of that ice, let it sit for 40 minutes, 
mel ice melts, saffron becomes part of, con and you get this beautiful concentrated saffron. Wow. And this saffron water, your bloom water, you can put in the jar and you can keep it between one week to two weeks in the refrigerator. And the ground saffron that you have, you can put in the, again, jar, tight, sealed jar in freezer forever. So you don't have to do everyday grounding. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. You can only keep the liquid for one or two weeks? Yeah, in uh, the refrigerator. Really? You can't stay longer than that? No, it gets spoiled, yeah. Oh. It's a bit, when you do bloom it, I yeah. Can, I don't, I've never actually done the grinding of the saffron myself. Like, for years, my mom on Sundays, like when I would visit her, would, would give me a little um, container of liquid saffron that she's made. <laughs> when you reference the Persian moms out there. who, But I think she uses the hot water. Yes, like it, that's a, right, nothing wrong with that. But you have to be expert to use the right temperature of water, and they are expert. Mm. But in my case, I show on my video with thermometer, you put the water, make sure it's uh, not too hot. So okay. you don't, you have a right outcome on, on that. So water. on the video, are you showing us both methods, the, the hot water and the ice method I am, as well? Yes, I am talking about saffron. I'm showing the grounding. I'm showing the hot and ice one. And also, since we talk about saffron right now, uh, why do you see the saffron prices different in the market? Why is Iranian saffron expensive versus Spanish? Uh, saffron stigmas has a top part they call sargol and bottom yellow. The yellow one is the one we use it just for flavor. They don't ha have a color. Right. So the top one is expensive one, but in the market they mix those together and they color them. So that's what some of the saffron has uh. at the bottom of the stigma, which is yellow, color dyed and added to saffron so you have to be careful so the best saffron to buy is those beautiful bouquet bundles of the saffron come in the jar from iran so you know top part is the best saffron and bottom one is still you can use it for the flavoring not for coloring now through through my mom i, I i've learned to put saffron in in a lot of persian dishes that i would cook like you know whatever or whatever uh what is your favorite application of of saffron you know, I like the color aroma. I like you know, rice puddings. I like and I like oh. my cream sauce, especially the cream mm. sauce. It's at the end you few drops of concentrated saffron in it. It gives a beautiful vibrant color and aroma. And again, I mix uh, my cuisine sometimes Italian. They use the saffron too, but. Uh, on your cream sauces or it is rice actually uh, the aroma that gives it rice is amazing of course uh, of course the, yeah, rice yeah, uh, yeah. I, I love this I'm, I'm looking forward to this video is going to be at rookmedia.com rookmedia.com or on our telegram channel which is also rookmedia Shia go ahead uh, um, is it a myth that uh, people say when you eat saffron it makes you laugh Mm, yeah, great question. So. There's a that's the medicine, but if you eat too much of saffron, it has a side effect and it can hallucinate you. That's a good. <laughs> one. Yeah, yeah. So you can yes, yes. Yes. so you can you get right. high. On drop some saffron. saffron. Yeah. <laughs> so so like same time you're talking about this, Shaya uh, John. There's uh, old days before they used to use the food. They used use the saffron in the uh, soldiers or the general in the bath. They believe that it helps you tiredness and also helps your wounds get better. But I have a great story since uh, Valentine's was, but Cleopatra, you, we all know an Egyptian uh, a, a lady. She used, yeah. to, she used to use a quarter of a cup of saffron in her bath. 
Ooh. right? For mm. cause of coloring and cosmetic properties. Mm. She used it before. This is funny. Don't laugh, please. She used it before encounter with man in be, uh, 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 believe that the saffron makes love making more pleasurable. Oh, <laughs> oh wow! Not no laughing so, matter. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a very interesting. I want to say. Is and, this and true? So, Chef Haas, do you do you often bathe in the saffron <laughs> then before your? I haven't tried your it, but gave weekends in San Francisco. <laughs> Well, we've learned a lot. Uh, by the way, as soon as we, uh, you, you mentioned that it's also a drug that can cause hallucination, Keon perked up. She's interested all of a sudden. <laughs> Me and Shia look at each other like, let's try it. Keon just snorted a line of saffron <laughs> off of her desk. <laughs> Keon's going to get the doctor to, to <laughs> acquire bags of saffron for the next uh, holiday. Yeah. In uh, the, at the end, in regards to food, I want to please the audience, please, please do not use saffron for your tactics. Because you're wasting the money and, the, you know, it might give you color, but not the aroma. What? The turmeric, mm. poor man's saffron. You can use the turmeric for the color because when you overcook the saffron, you lose the, the best part of the saffron aroma. So there's no point you use the saffron for tactics. I After love one hour of steaming, you ruin the saffron. I love saffron, Taddy. You're, you're telling me it's no good? No, I mean, it's I a flavor. You don't know. The aroma goes, the flavor color is there. Mm -hmm. But since it's very expensive, you, you know, it gives a flavor, but aroma goes away. But you can, at the end, you can drop some, you can spray the saffron your tactic. That's fine. I see. There's a trick, as a chef's trick. When okay. I do saffron, uh, I mean, do the tactic, at the end, you squeeze bottles, you can do saffron water, spray it like a moisturize on the tactic. You get that the gorgeous aroma from saffron to your tactic. Mm. Absolutely, Chef yeah. Haas. Save the money, use the turmeric. You are the best. You're saving us money and finding ways for us to bathe in. Um, <laughs> We're gonna take a saffron <laughs> bath yeah. after this. That sounds like a tremendous waste of money. <laughs> the one quarter cup of saffron for you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's try it, uh, Chef Haas. Thank you. Uh, we'll see you next week. We'll look out for your video rookmedia.com to see Chef's uh, latest video uh, this time how to with well, the best way to bloom and make saffron um thank you brother thank you guys always a pleasure that's chef hostare in san francisco with hospitality again see the video at rookmedia.com or our telegram channel rook media listen before we go i want to mention another bff another new patron of ours uh, at rook uh for ten dollars a month you become one of our bffs thank you to mina mozafari Mina Mozafari. Thanks, Mina. Uh, this is full time for Rook for today. I want to thank um, the amazing team who puts this show together each week. Producer Susan, Ponsa the Artist, Thoughtful Nagin, the fabulous Keon, Savvy Roham, Alayamir Dodd, Master Muhammad, Chef Haas, Captain Reza and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. And uh, as we mentioned, do check out our Support Us page, our Patrons page. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month, 10 bucks a month. It all makes a difference to us. Thank you. You can find me on Instagram at Giangomeshi. I'm off to bathe in some saffron. In the meantime, Mizunbashi. Mizunbashi.